Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 335 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the Netflix original series Maniac, starring Jonah Hill and Emma Stone. And this will involve spoilers for everything in the show, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Rajan Khanna, making his 11th appearance on the show. He's the author of the post-apocalyptic novels Falling Sky, Rising Tide, and Raining Fire, and his short fiction appears in magazines such as Lightspeed, Shimmer, and Beneath Useless Skies. His articles have appeared on Tor.com and LitReactor.com. So Raj, welcome to the show. Thanks. Always happy to be back. Then next up, we've got Chandra Klang-Smith, who you may remember from our feature interview back in episode 301. Her debut novel, The Sky is Yours, about a surreal science fiction city that for decades has been under attack by dragons, was published earlier this year by Hogarth. She's also served twice as a juror for the Shirley Jackson Awards, and she currently teaches in the Creative Writing MFA program at Sarah Lawrence College. So Chandler, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. And also joining us today is Matthew Kressel, who you may remember from our panel on Solo back in episode 312, our panel on Blade Runner 2049 back in episode 277, and our panel on Jewish science fiction back in episode 172. He's the author of the novel King of Shards, and his short story The Last Novelist, or A Dead Lizard in the Yard, was nominated for the Nebula Award and was a finalist for the Eugene Foster Memorial Award. Together with Alan Datlow, he hosts the monthly Fantastic Fiction Reading Series at the KGB Bar in New York. So Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great always to be here. Okay, so let's start off with Chandler. And before we actually get to the show, I just wanted to congratulate you on your new teaching job. And uh, could you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's been really fabulous. I've been uh, teaching a craft course at Sarah Lawrence College in the MFA program. So um, the craft classes are interesting because they're a combination of, uh, you know, reading assignments and then also like creative writing exercises. Um, but it's been a great chance to revisit some of my favorite books. So um, the class is called Lost in the Maze and we're reading speculative fiction where characters are enmeshed in systems beyond their knowledge or control, which actually kind of fits in really nicely with the themes of Maniac. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's something we've talked a lot, a lot about on this podcast is how people will go to study creative writing in college and often the courses are not particularly friendly to fantasy and science fiction. And yeah. So I think it's really cool that Sarah Lawrence just started up this speculative, speculative fiction, fiction in the yeah, MFA exactly. program. Yeah, that's something that I was so enthusiastic about because I really do feel like uh, the tools and strategies that we use as speculative fiction writers are often a little bit different. And, um, you know, being able to even just name the problems that you're having in your work is such a powerful tool. And then, you know, also being inspired by other writers who are trying to do similar things. So, yeah, it's been a really wonderful opportunity for me. Yeah, so everyone go check out that program. Maybe you can take a take a class with Chandler. She's an excellent writer. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, why don't you tell us, Chandler, um, let's get to Maniac and just have you tell us uh, sort of why did you decide to watch this show in the first place and what were your expectations going into it? Well, I actually was familiar with the writer uh, Patrick Somerville, who's the creator of the show, um, because I reviewed his book, The Universe in Miniature and Miniature, for the KGB Bar Lit Mag back probably like the better part of a decade ago. And that book just made a real impression on me. Um, the way that it kind of used, there's 
in the in that book, there's the uh, device for understanding other people, I think it's called, which in some ways is similar to the technology that's explored in the show, the idea of, um, you know, a machine or computer that can help you access another person's consciousness. Um, and I just thought that that was a really like elegant, moving, memorable work. So when I found out that he was a creator of the show, uh, that also seemed like it had you know, other influences like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind was something that I heard it compared to early on. The visuals reminded me of uh, some of Terry Gilliam's work, and he's one of my favorite directors. I was just super, super intrigued. Um, I'm not a big TV watcher in general, but I was kind of sucked into this right away. So, yeah, those were some of the reasons that I was attracted to it. That's interesting. You know, I was noticing I was not familiar with Patrick Somerville. I mean, I know that he did. Um, he was a writer on The Leftovers, um, particularly, I think, yeah. seasons two and three, which from what I've heard, I haven't watched it but from what I've heard are, are considered some of the best seasons of the show. Um, but so I was just looking that he has published, I think, two novels and two short story collections. And certainly that that recent collection you mentioned, that which came out in 2010, looks like it had a lot of you know speculative elements in it. Um, so, yeah, that's just kind of interesting background for the for the show. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's definitely a book that's worth checking out for if you enjoyed Maniac, I think that you would enjoy that book as well. Yeah, cool. All right. So how about uh, Matt? Uh, what were your expectations going going into the show? Uh, I, I pretty much went in blind. I, I think uh, I saw someone mention it on on, net, on um, Facebook as, you know, oh, hey, I'm watching the show. It's really interesting. And it came up. Uh, we, we were watching some Netflix show and it, it came up as like a suggested um series so I, I i just gave it a chance and um I, I think i was immediately taken in uh sort of by the the visual aesthetic of it just that that um kind of uh 80s retro futurism and there was also this really interesting uh character development that went on in the first episode that i thought was intriguing it's something that I, that i hadn't seen before uh, or recently in a series, and um, I wasn't completely blown away by the first episode, but I was intrigued enough to keep watching, and I'm really happy that I did. Were you familiar with the director of this? His name is Kerry Fukunaga. He's known for the first season, uh, known as the good season of True Detective. <laughs> I, I've heard his name mentioned uh, before. I, I I loved the first season of True Detective. I thought that was... Uh, fantastic television and um you know i've i've heard his his name mentioned before um but it wasn't until like i i went and looked up the the director of this that i said oh that's the same same guy but uh yeah no i thought it was incredibly well directed yeah i certainly agree with you about the visual aesthetic i think that's the for me would be the the primary strength of the show um i mean it has other strengths it has some weaknesses in my opinion but um the visual aesthetic is very very strong in my opinion uh, how about Raj? Expectations? Initial impressions? Uh, I don't know that I had... I think I tried to keep my expectations low because by the time I, I had heard that it was out, I think people were already buzzing about it on social media and I didn't want to go in with with any real expectations except that I, I heard that it was going to be kind of trippy and the, the images seemed to suggest that. Um, and so I think... I think I tried to keep myself kind of blind to it. Um, I just, I wanted it to be weird. I know that. So I, and that's what it seemed to be, to be going for. Uh, and I think, yeah, initial impressions. I mean, I, I'll agree with you, you guys in terms of the visuals. I, I think that is definitely one of the strengths of the show. And I watched the whole thing with my girlfriend, Elizabeth, and we just kept like 
giving raves to the art direction on, on the whole thing. Um, and I'm just a sucker for, I guess, what I call retro futures, where like it's the future, but it's clearly inspired by a period of our past. So, you know, the game Fallout, for example, you know, which is comes out of like the kind of 50s and 60s aesthetic. And this with its whole kind of 80s thing just really worked for me since that was a era that I grew up in. Um, so, yeah. And your girlfriend is a filmmaker, right? She's a filmmaker. She's a producer. Uh, she works in casting as well. So, so yeah, she's worked um, in that field for a while. So did she have any special filmmaker insights on the uh, cinematography or anything? Um, not, I mean, we, I guess we didn't really talk about that at this point. I mean, we, we finished it fairly recently, but um, I think, you know, again, the direction was something that, that we both, you know, appreciated throughout. I, I agree with you that I felt like it had some weaknesses, um, but it was generally just enjoyable. Like it's one of those things for me that I feel like I enjoyed it enough that while I recognized the the flaws in it, they didn't really kind of grate at me the way that they would if if it wasn't quite as satisfying. Um, and I just liked seeing something like that out there, you know, like, and, and I know Netflix puts out a lot of variety of stuff, but the fact that this is one of their, their big, um, you know, things right now, I, I, I want more of that kind of stuff, I guess. So I'm happy to see it. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that completely. And I'm going to have some criticisms of this show, but I am happy to see science fiction on television with, uh, you know, artistic ambition and obviously a big budget and a unique voice. I think, you know, you you have to give the show all that. Um, Matt, you said that the first episode you were kind of like had mixed feelings about. Why was that? Um, I'm trying to, you know recreate my ignorance uh, so like <laughs> going back to the, trying to remember the specific feelings but i i think i just i was i was worried it was going to be um almost like nihilistic just sort of like um uh that reality you can't trust reality that nothing is real that that nothing is worth anything and, and, I, and i was afraid that they were going to handle mental illness in a in a bad way um so, for example, um, in the uh, Silver Linings playbook, which I thought most of that film actually handled mental illness really well, but I thought that they they destroyed their own um, setup by by basically having the characters live this sort of happily ever after at the end. Uh, you know, the the message of the movie that at least I I took, maybe others didn't, was that. Oh, all you need is a, a companion who loves you, that you love, and then everything will be fine. And I, I think that, um, because I have family members who are mentally ill and have had others that have passed away and, you know, paranoid schizophrenia, for example, um, and I've seen this with real people, I was, I was just afraid that it was going to be handled poorly. Um, and, and I was also kind of afraid that it was just going to be kind of a pastiche of other things, but wouldn't have its own own voice. And and I, I was really pleasantly surprised with all of those aspects, which which I guess we can get into. But I I just was um, I really enjoyed how thoughtful it was, and and how how it was not afraid to talk about trauma, which I which I feel like a lot of times. Um, you know, uh, storytelling doesn't really deal with trauma, I think, in a, in a realistic way. And, and I thought that the movie, uh, excuse me, the series handled it, it very deftly. 
Well, let me pick up on what you were saying about mental illness, because this is actually based on a Norwegian TV series, also called Maniac. I couldn't right. find a lot of information about it, um, but from what I understand, it's it's very, very different. That, that They basically just took a couple ideas from that and, and basically spun out something completely different. But one of the things I heard the creators of this show say is that one of the things they wanted to do differently from the Norwegian show was they felt that in that show, a lot of the humor had come out of sort of, isn't it funny that people with mental illness don't understand what's going on around them or what's really happening. Um, and, and they were, they wanted to not handle it that way. They wanted the humor to, to not be about mental illness being, being funny um, for people who don't have mental illness. Um, so I, I think, you know, the, the sort of concerns that you're expressing, I think the filmmakers were sort of aware, were cognizant of that and, and, and at least trying to, to, to handle that in a sort of responsible way. Um, but why don't we get into what the show is actually about? Um, so, so Chandra, why don't you tell us about um, sort of the, the this the show was set in sort of um, as I think uh, Matt was mentioning, sort of a weird retro futurist sort of setting. You want to what were your, what were your impressions of the setting? Just tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that especially on a second watch of the series, I was really struck by uh, how well the world building was done. Actually, I mean, it seems like. Um, a lot of the world building is tied in thematically to what's going on with the characters, which I think is always an excellent choice, um, you know, to have sort of everything in the story pointing in the same direction. So a couple of things that are, you know, important uh, semi-futuristic aspects of this world. One is ad buddies. So in order to, it seems like it's, it's kind of modeled on the way that if you don't have a subscription to certain websites, then they'll show you ads, but you can also like pay to have those ads removed. It's the idea of that kind of carrying over into, into meat space. Um, so someone will, with a briefcase full of ads, will basically follow you around and talk through ads at you if you can't pay for like, you know, basically any product in a store, like uh, you can pay for it with an ad buddy instead. So in an early scene, uh, Emma Stone's character, Annie, is going to buy cigarettes and she says, you know, I'll have an ad buddy, like, you know, uh, to pay for this purchase. And the guy says, no, you can't have an ad buddy. We don't accept ad buddies here because they listen in on your conversations. So there's a sort of idea of what we have in our world as like an online surveillance and ad culture has been translated into like, you know, in, in, into external space. It's been, it's been sort of literalized in this really interesting way. And I thought that that was such a smart idea, a way of commenting on something, you know, technological in our own culture, but making it visible to us in a new way. Right. So, yeah. 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 So, so it takes sort of features of our, of our internet life and translates them into analog technologies. Um, yeah. And not only does it translate them into analog technologies, but it kind of hones in on how those technologies relate to loneliness and to this idea of being seen but not understood, which seems to be something that the characters are experiencing. Another, like, uh, I, I, I hesitate to call it technology exactly, but another, like, service that's in the show is the idea of the friend proxy, where you yeah. can hire somebody to, uh, you know, pretend to be your friend, se seemingly to pretend to be a specific friend or person who's missing from your life. And it seems like that's sort of, you know, my impression is that that is kind of about the way that will sometimes substitute a service, like maybe even Netflix um, itself, <laughs> for, you know experiences that might be a little bit more challenging and unpredictable. So, yeah, yeah I was yeah, very I mean, taken by that. 
Or I've heard a lot of people say that, you know, they listen to so many podcasts that the people on the podcast become like their friends. They feel closer to them than, you know, their their sort of meet space friends. Uh, I hope all our listeners feel that way. But, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's it's that same sort of uh, translation into, you know, into a non-digital sort of um, you know, format. Yeah. Um, how about uh, Raj? Do you have anything you want to add about the the retro futurism? Well, I, I just want to say that, you know, I'm surprised that Matt said that, you know, the first episode he was questionable on, because I think in that first episode, when we see, you know, the ad buddies and a lot of these other little world building choices, I think that's kind of what sold me on it. And, you know, it, it they kind of fade out as we go through the different, um, you know, I guess, dream or whatever experiences you want to call it that the, the characters are having after they become part of the experiment. But I just loved all those little bits and pieces, which, you know, they don't hit too hard. They're just kind of there in the background. But I felt like it made the world feel real to me. And I thought they were amazing ideas that I'm surprised I haven't seen before. I, I, I totally agree with that, Raj. I was, I was totally on board with this from the start for exactly the reason you're stating. I loved the little retro futurist dystopian sort of elements. I'll mention a couple more. There's something called, I think it's Avoid which is this uh, pod in your backyard that you just kind of go into. Presumably there's some sort of virtual reality environment inside and there's sort of like um, pi uh, hoses for food and water or whatever. Uh, and Perfect uh, name too for that. I mean, it's, it, that, that's like a perfect name for, for that in this world, especially like the avoid obviously as the obvious thing, but a void, like it, those kind of things. I just love when people find the perfect word for something. It's great. But also, like, the little pooper scoopers, the little <laughs> robots that were going through the streets. I mean, to me, they looked like the exact same uh, shape, just just the avoid was larger. So it was almost like he was hiding inside a pooper scooper. Oh, I didn't even make that connection, ah. but I really love that, the idea of that being kind of a visual echo, that, like, it's sort of the thing that, that scoops up all your shit, whether that's emotional shit or literal shit. Right. Know? I mean, there's so much, there's so much in the series like that, these little things that, that re reward like careful, uh, attention. You know, I, I, I wish I had the time to watch it twice like you did, cause I, you did Chandler, cause I, I, I can see like there's so much there that I probably missed the first time through. I actually saw the first episode twice because I, I watched it once on my own and then, uh, we had some friends over, uh, Teresa Delucci, who, who was on, uh, your, I know has been on your podcast before. Uh, and we, and I and I we, I watched it again with them, and then the this, this second time through the first episode, I was like, "Oh wow, I missed all these little connections. That's pretty cool." So I'm jealous that you got to watch it all the way through twice. <laughs> I think it really rewards, yeah, for you know further reviewing of it because, um, yeah, I, I feel like there's still stuff that I probably missed even on even on the second time through. Um, another piece of technology that I think you know I'd be remiss not to mention is the. Uh, the sort of weird turn pornography has taken in this world, mm -hmm. um, which we see with, uh, with James's character, the doctor, uh, Dr. James Mantle, Mantle Ray. Um, so yeah, what, what did you guys make of that? I feel like that also ties into those ideas of loneliness and disconnection. I feel yeah, like that's I mean, an inevitable okay. development. I, I, but I feel like it, it's an inevitable, inevitable development, but I also feel like, you know, like what Chandler said in the sense, like this, the series to me is about, you know, loneliness and isolation and, and this hunger for connection, right? So, so you can't afford something. So you get an ad buddy. They're called an ad buddy. Like a buddy is like a synonym for a friend, but they're not really your friend, right? And then the same thing with like friend proxy. 
um, you, you're paying someone to be your friend, but they're not really your friend. And then you have like the technology where the guy hides in a box, a void. And, and then, you know, this pornography, which is like, um, you know, Dr. Mantle Ray, he's not connecting with a human being. He's connected with, connecting with software. And there's, there's a, a hint through the, the show that he actually had some kind of weird romantic relationship with the AI, uh, Gerda. And that's why he was canned. At least that's the way I read it. So it's like, it, it's, to me, it's like this, this, this theme of, uh, loneliness and alienation running through the whole series. I also, I also just want to mention, so there's, uh, doxing is apparently so common in this world that there's an actual store, like docs, it's called Doc Stop. And it's like a Kinko's or something. You just go in and, and <laughs> get blackmail material on, on whoever. Um, there's like a robot koala, like a, like a obscene robot koala, uh, character. Oh, yeah. The chess player. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was just so weird. I didn't even know <laughs> how to place that in context of anything. But. but I feel like the unifying thread of a lot of these is, you know, the koala, the, the suck tube pornography, like the friend proxy, all of these things are about, substituting the sort of vagaries of real connection with something that is kind of like, you know, a system that is more predictable. And then the system that's so central to this, the GRTA or Actually, Gertie, wait, wait, wait. Um, let's, let's get, let's wait a little bit to yeah. get into that. Uh, okay, absolutely. That's like the yeah. whole show. Um, yeah, totally. But let me just, uh, I also just want to mention from the first episode, uh, the, the part I found the most striking was there's this statue of extra liberty. So... <laughs> Like rather than the Statue of Liberty, um, there's this big statue, and it, it's it's like a has these massive wings, and seems to be holding some sort of globe or skull or something, and then a knife or a thunderbolt or something, as if it's about to stab. Or I'm not even sure. It's super weird, but that that was there was just something so uh, just eerie to me about that. And once they um, called it the Statue of Extra Liberty. And actually, just I, I don't think I would have known this from watching the show, but apparently there's still in this world, there's the Statue of Liberty, and this is looking in a different direction. There's They, they built another one, the Statue of Extra Liberty, because uh, one Statue of Liberty isn't enough. And in interviews I read, they didn't really explain what the thinking was behind that. Kind of the, the way I read it was that this is such a um, sort of consumerist world, and there's so much uh, rhetoric around uh, sort of conflating personal freedom with a lack of regulations that that may be part of the the ethos of this this world is that you know part of the reason consumerism is is so rampant is because uh you know it, it, it's been associated with personal liberty in this really sort of overt way um i don't know does anyone have any uh, any other raj do you have any thoughts on the statue of extra liberty did you did you like that um, you know what? I have to say that I, I, I know I noticed it, but it didn't really stick with me until, we, and, and it must have just been maybe I looked away or something like <laughs> that. But now that you're talking about, I mean, I do love that, that kind of, um, thing. And I, I agree with you that I find, I find that to be creepy. It's almost like taking a kind of enshrined monument that means something good to a lot of people and then, you know, putting a new shiny version that's kind of aggressive. Um, in the same vein, which seems like it's co-opting this great thing for something sinister. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, 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 but again, like a little thing like that is, is such a delicate touch that adds, you know, so much to the feel of the world that they've created. 
Does anyone know what the Statue of Extra Liberty is holding? I don't mean to seem obsessed with the Statue of Extra Liberty, but I did like that. I didn't, you know, I, I saw mention of it, but not what it was holding. I mean, to, to me, like I, I read that, I mean, not read that, but like I interpreted that when it, when it crossed the screen, like, okay, this is not our world. Uh, when I, when I first saw it, because I didn't really know anything about the show, what kind of world we were in, I was like, okay, this is, um, either an alternate reality or he's just like, you know, completely hallucinating and, and we can't trust anything. Right, in this world. right. Um, well, what is it holding? Well, like, it, it's so far in the distance, you can't quite tell. Like I said, it seems to be holding some sort of knife or something and some sort of globe or something, but I, I don't know yeah, what, what they're meant to it be. It could exactly. be a lightning bolt or, you know, something round. Um, I saw somebody mention it could be an apple or something like that, but I, I don't, you know, it, it's unclear from, from the distance you see it at. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. So, so Matt, since you mentioned, um, the schizophrenia and where you're, you're not sure if anything in the show is real initially. Uh, let's get mm-hmm. into that. Why don't you tell us about our main character, Owen Milgram? Okay, so Owen Milgram is um, part of this uh, super rich family. Um, I believe they got rich from the the pooper scoopers, yeah, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. And uh, so basically, he um, is diagnosed with uh, paranoid schizophrenia. Like I guess what was it, ten years before the the show, or six years? I don't remember exactly. Ten years before the events of the show take place, he had a a a so-called blip where he, he had a psychotic break and he thought that uh, some girl he was seeing was was a, a setup by his family and he, he freaked out. Uh, but he's his that, that, brother. That she had been hired to be his girlfriend. That was... she had been hired to be his girlfriend. And and uh, his brother is on trial for uh, what we later learn is is for for urinating on a woman. And his his family. Uh, asks him to to lie and say that oh his brother was with him the whole night he couldn't have done this uh, in order to protect the family name so so um, Owen starts off the series as being um, very shy very withdrawn very um, distrusting of others even himself and he also sees um, a a an hallucination of uh, like an alternate version of his brother that's an hallucination. Uh, it's an alternate version of his brother, but the brother has a has a mustache, and he tells him that, "Oh, you're you're part of the secret mission. You know, you're you're part of this great mission. You're going to save the universe." Um, and uh, so, basically, what happens is after Owen uh, Owen can't afford a, a subway ride, so he gets an ad buddy. The ad buddy's talking to him, um, and as soon as he gets home, he gets a call from the this pharmaceutical company saying. Uh, you know, we want you to participate in this trial of this new drug that could potentially cure you. And so, so basically he decides to enter into this, this, uh, drug trial at, uh, this pharmaceutical company. Right. And he's, I don't know if you mentioned he lost his job, so he needs money and he doesn't want to take money from his family. Uh, I also just want to, just point of order, uh, the, the, this is maybe not the most important thing, but the brother, was he peeing on somebody or was he, did he coerce someone into peeing on him? I thought it was the latter. I thought he was the P.E., if that's yeah. a I, word. I think he was... Wait, the P.E.? Okay. <laughs> and it was also work... You know, it was in the workplace, so he actually... Right. It was an employee, his, employee yeah. 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 When they're preparing for the trial, there's a line about, have you ever seen your brother participate in a consensual or non-consensual act of urination? But I guess that could go either way. Well, um, you, and, you, and all... 
all of the papers throughout the show say things like Bladdergate and pissed off. I don't know right. if you guys noticed that. <laughs> I didn't notice well, that. It seems like the family's business is just all associated in, you know, bodily <laughs> functions. <laughs> Um, but I just want to bring special note to the the actor who plays the brother. I think his name is Billy Magnuson. He was also the douchey brother in Ingrid Goes West. I don't know if anyone saw that, but it's like he's a, a he, it's almost like he was genetically engineered in a lab to play a douchey brother. Like I, it's like his face is just like so perfect for that kind of role. Uh, and just I, you, I'm maybe get a little ahead, but the the, the flashback where he sings. Um, every breath you take at, when he uh, proposes to his girlfriend, just like everything about his body language is just so amazingly douchey. I mean, it's just, it's almost supernatural. Um, all right. But so, all right. So getting back. So that's, uh, is there anything else we need to say about Owen by way of setup I, here? I actually think that there's another significant thing, which is that um, he, before he actually meets Annie, Emma Stone's character um, at the testing facility, he's been seeing her face everywhere because she sold her face right, to right. ad companies. Yeah. So he thinks that they have some sort of destiny together because she's been kind of following him around uh, the same way that an ad follows us around from like, you know, YouTube to Facebook to Twitter. Like, you know, when you see an ad that's like attracted your attention, it follows you. That that happens on, you know, bus stations and billboards and stuff in the real world in in the world of this uh, TV show. And this is also like precipitated by his um, hallucinated version of his brother telling him that, you know, someone's going to make contact with you. You'll, you'll know it when you see them. You'll know them when you see them. So it, it sort of like leads him to think that she is this contact. Yeah. So he thinks they have a special connection going in and then they do sort of end up developing a special connection for, for reasons both accidental and not. Let me just mention about Owen, too. His last name is Milgram, and this is a reference to the Milgram uh, experiment, which was this experiment where they, uh, Stanley Milgram de basically demonstrated that uh, test subjects would do anything that uh, a, a sort of the person running the experiment would tell them to do, up to and including uh, giving people electric shocks until they lost consciousness. Uh, so just a little uh, context there. But so, yeah, so... Um, uh, Chandra, why don't you tell us about this other major character, Annie, played by Emma Stone? Well, um, I guess that the order in which we we learn things about her is sort of different than the order in which they happen. So I guess I'll, I'll start with the way she's presented in the show. So um, when we first meet her, she's posting these uh, lost dog flyers of a dog that... Uh, you know, there's a picture of it. And then, uh, seven years later, like artists, uh, artists rendering of what the dog looked like <laughs> seven years after it being, it was lost, which seems like she's kind of stuck in the past. Um, and we also find out that she has become addicted to this drug, the A pill, which she grinds up and snorts like it's cocaine. Um, and it seems to the first time we see her use it, we're not inside of her consciousness. We're just observing her. And it seems like she basically passes out for an entire day um, on the couch in this this shared apartment um, where she's living with a bunch of kind of bohemian bohemian characters, it seems like. Um, I think it's kind who she of implied who she doesn't get along with. She does not get along with them. No. Um, and yeah, then she 
announces that she is planning a trip to Salt Lake City to see her sister that she might finance with, uh, you know, with ad buddies along the way. Um, and she goes to visit her father, who is spending time in the A void in his backyard to tell him of this plan. Um, she takes a bunch of his money, but when she goes to the train station to depart, she looks at, the, you know, the listing of all of the departures and all she ends up seeing is the letter A. So she decides, okay, you know, she's out of the pills that she's been taking. Um, Which is a beautiful scene, by the way. So good. I love that part. It's such a such a memorable, dreamlike, and haunting image. And it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, I, I think that that was just excellently done. But anyway, so she's she's out of these pills, um, you know, desperate to get more. She finds out from the guy that she originally got them from that they're from his, his father's work, which is Neverdean Phar- Pharmaceuticals. So via blackmail... Um, of a woman who works at the facility, she manages to get herself inserted into this trial where she'll get another A pill. But what she's not necessarily expecting is that she's also going to get these B and C pills, which have different but related effects. So that's sort of the way her character is set up as this, uh, yeah, this, this aggressive, uh, confrontational, drug-seeking person who seems to have these moments of remorse for her behavior, but then ends up persisting in it anyway. But then she ends up getting a lot more complicated, as does her backstory as the as the series progresses. Right. So let's get to that in a little bit. So, Raj, what did you think of the Neberdeen pharmaceutical trials? Well, I mean, I think they're presented, again, as part of this this retro future that they create here. So, you know, everything's you know, everything looks like it's, you know, an Atari factory or something like that. You know, I, I love the little <laughs> stripe of colors across the wall. But um, it's. You know, I, I think my first impression was they they show us this kind of future dystopia or you know alternate present dystopia, and so I think pharmaceutical companies often get linked to that. I mean, Philip K. Dick did a lot with um, you know pharmaceuticals that that people take, and um, well, and there's a huge. I mean, this this whole first three episodes has a very strong Philip K. Dick feel to it. Yeah, yeah, and I, I I just I mean. What I think back to is that video that they show everyone when they come in, um, which is, you know, again, so retro and cheesy and it looks like an infomercial kind of thing and it tells them exactly what's going to happen. But I think actually that was the moment where I was like fully in for this show. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Um, and I loved the idea of the three pills and, you know, this kind of massive technology that they had put together. I guess we don't really learn about Gerd, Gerda in that point right but um well well we know that no we do cuz the, the in the um orientation video it says that the soup, their um microwave uh microwaves are going to like analyze their brain patterns and this super intelligent computer is going to rewire their brains to make them uh, health you know mentally healthy yeah yeah so i mean i thought everything about that was kind of creepy and cheesy and looked amazing and i thought justin Thoreau was was awesome as dr mantle ray and um and I love Izumi as well. So like with those two in there, although I guess he, he comes in later, but I, he, he's on the video. He's the first face we see. And so, um, just everything about that just worked for me. Like I, I never got tired of seeing those people and that place and, you know, the little weird pods that they had to sleep in, in between the, these sessions where they're, they're put into the machines and given pills and they have these dreams. Um, and of course, you know, you're, you're set up to, or I would think you're set up. I, I was set up to think that this is not going to be an up and up 
kind of situation <laughs> where they're, you know, I, things are definitely not going to go the way that they expect. And there, there's, you know, the, the aims of, uh, Neberdeen are, are very different from what they're telling the, the patients who are coming in. But, um, it seems like there, there are all these people who are just desperate for this kind of thing. I mean, the waiting room is full of people. They have all those numbers. I mean, Annie has to basically intimidate her way into the trial. So, um, it, it's kind of like the, uh, a great blend of, um, the, I guess the, the mundane nature of like waiting in lines and having to fill out paperwork and, and, and having to go through that kind of process. And then this kind of sinister, you know, inner, pharmaceutical company um that you know comes out of the the 80s sort of right let me say about the the orientation video so they're told that they're going to take these three pills pill a b and c which is agonia which is going to dredge up their most painful memories behavioral which is going to lower their uh, self-defense mechanisms and confraxia which is going to make them confront the the thing the things that they most need to confront about themselves and we're also told that they're going to be entering some sorts of dream hallucinations in between each each of these stages. Um, so how about let's get back to Chandler. What did you think of the uh, what you think of this whole like process of the taking well, the pills and getting having the dreams? I think for me, the first really big surprise in the series came when we uh the second time we see Annie take the A pill, we actually get to see what is going on inside of her consciousness. Um, when I first saw her, you know, sort of nod off on the couch, uh, like, you know, you kind of as assume that it's maybe something sort of like heroin, um, that it's, you know, it's something that gives you a feeling that's euphoric, but kind of immobilizing and that, you know, that, that it gives you this sort of release or relief from your problems. Um, but then when she actually takes it, what we discover is that that's not what the A-pill does at all. As you mentioned, the A-pill thrusts you back into, like, your most terrible memory, the most traumatizing event of your life, which in her case, like, obviously this is all spoilers, but, like, uh, it turns out to be the death of her sister um, at the end of, you know, a weekend where they had been fighting and, uh, you know, Annie feels some responsibility for it because she was the one driving the car. Um, and I was so shocked by that. It really, it was, it was a case where it was one of those moments in fiction where something is totally unexpected, but also feels really, really right. Um, so I really loved that, that, the, you know, it was not actually just that Annie gets to check out of her problems, but actually that she, she gets to sort of like, you know, um, scrape that wound and like, you know, it makes her feel worse but also like she's closer to the moment where things went wrong and that there's you know either a fantasy of being able to do things differently or even or even just you know as she says she gets to spend another day with her sister um so yeah i was really i was really taken by that and it made me kind of reevaluate everything i felt like i knew about her character up to that point and going back to the cinematography the way that accident is shot i thought was amazing uh, yeah, the way the camera's so fixed on her as she sort of, or no, maybe I guess it's just fixed on the, the car as she sort of falls out of the door as the car keeps rolling off the cliff. Uh, I just thought it was brilliant. Yeah, we see the car turning and, uh, you know, that they almost are like thrown loose of, loose of gravity in that moment. And it's just, uh, it's, it's so gutting and genuinely affecting. Like, um, and then right after that, you know, she has a conversation with another one of the patients who's saying, you know, 
well, I also relieved, I, I also re- relived this traumatic memory, but it wasn't the way that I remembered it, you know, was, was that reality or was that something else? And it really is just something I think about like the nature of memory. Um, yeah. Right. And so then we also, <laughs> so, so Owen sort of pretends to take the pill, but doesn't. And so he tells, uh, the first do- doctor that we meet, Dr. Robert, uh, Muramoto, I think, um, about a traumatic experience from his past. And we don't know if he's telling the truth or not. Um, but how about Matt? What did you think of, do you remember this? Well, this was the, uh, engagement party, uh, scene. Um, yeah. So I, I, what, I guess what struck me about this scene the most was, was kind of how like echoing what Chandler said was just sort of like, the reality of it, like, like this, this was somebody who, um, has basically been ignored by his family completely and who is in a situation. And anytime he expresses his own needs, um, it, it's, um, shunned or frowned upon or, or ignored. And, and, um, so I, I just, I was basically just struck by, by, uh, by how, how true that felt. And I think that's when I really connected with Owen's character at that point. I think once I realized like how shitty a life he has with his family and, and how alone he is and, and even with a mental illness. So, so for me, that really worked. Well, right. And we find out that he has four brothers who all are, seem to be sort of happy and successful and popular. And, and he, like, they don't even have, there's this funny thing where they've, they've painted sort of a family portrait and they haven't, haven't included him yet. And they, then they say that they're going to get around to the, the painters, he's traveling or something, but someday they're going to paint him in there. Um, and then we also find out that his, um, brother Jed has a, a fiance, um, Adelaide, who is seemingly the only person in the family who's nice to, um, to Owen and who he clearly seems to have sort of a crush on. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, let's see. Okay, so how about uh I guess then is there anything else to that we should set up before we start getting into the dreams sequences? I think we're good. All right. Yeah, I mean Owen also recaps like when he actually does revisit his most terrible memory. We actually don't see his hallucination, but he tells Annie what it was, and it's when he had his blip, when he you know screamed at that girl in college. Um, so we we learned that that's sort of the locus of his trauma, even though it's not dramatized, which I thought was an interesting choice. Um, yeah, I wondered if anybody had thoughts about like why we don't see that scene. I, it was curious to me why we didn't see that scene either, because I, I felt that it was it was very integral to his character. But I I also feel like you know. Um, the show is very much, uh, about questioning reality. What's real? What's the nature of memory? Uh, in, in a very, a very Philip K. Dick sense. And, um, so, so I think it was like, you know, um, you know, if we had experienced that memory from him, I mean, would it have been exactly what happened? Or is that just the story that he's telling himself in order to survive? You know, so, so I mean, it, it, I don't know if it was just a, like a, you know, um, a narrative choice because they wanted to move the story along. Um, I don't know. What did you guys think? Of I almost felt like it was the show protecting his privacy in a certain way that like, he's such a, he's such a fragile character and it's something that 
it's I almost I almost felt like it was an opportunity to let Owen the character as we know him now like um reframe that story somehow. But yeah, I I did think it was it was a marked choice because you know so much other stuff is dramatized like Annie's trauma is dramatized. So yeah, and then we meet Olivia later in some of the fantasies, um, the girl that he screamed at, and you know um it's interesting that we only get those sort of fantasy versions of her. We don't have anything, anything that even is purporting to be real to compare them to. It's also that, I mean, yeah, that, that seems to be what he considers, you know, his kind of traumatic moment that, that would have come out. But for me, you know, his everyday existence, you know, he feels a slave to his schizophrenia and he feels tormented by, you know, both his family and the, the, the feeling of his own disease. And I think that that's like his big issue. It's not just that one moment. It's like his, his day to day life in a way. And so, you know, they've kind of, yeah, yeah. Helped us like with it, that. Yeah. Because like his, his, um, his worst day that he recounts is his, his paranoia that his family engineered this whole thing. Like that his family is like, like manipulating him in this evil way. And it turns out that they are. It's just not the way that he imagined it. Yeah, in a way, that's a really good point. In a way, it allows us to see what was accurate about his, you know, about his blip, as opposed to focusing on what was, you know, out of control and delusional about it. So, yeah, I think I think that maybe that was part of the the rationale for not dramatizing it is that like it it helps us focus on like the sort of the sort of structure or content of it, you know, like what what it was he was so afraid of. And I guess I'll just maybe I think we should emphasize. I mean, we mentioned that his family is trying to pressure him to um, give a false alibi for his brother. But so the structure to me, it reminds me a lot of um, Scent of a Woman, where you have a character who, you know, knows that he's going to have to testify and he, you know, when he's very conflicted about it, and then he goes on some crazy adventure in the middle of the movie, uh, and then, you know, then the the testifying thing sort of comes back at the end. Um, but let's get into these these dream sequences. So they they all take the, I guess it's the B pill, right? And then they start um, having the, the characters start having these dreams where uh, it's just they're, they're they're different people and they're having very odd adventures um that are sort of like linked in interesting ways to things that we know about them in the real world um and i have to say i I, as i said i was totally into this show up to this point i loved the the dystopian stuff and the paranoia and everything and the show kind of lost me with episode four where there's this uh sort of uh, it was like fargo or something there's sort sort of like lemur kidnapping adventure with gangsters and stuff and i felt like that was just it, it felt very disconnected to me from the rest of the story up to that point. And I felt like it just wasn't as interesting to me as the, the more science fictional um, conspiracy kind of stuff that had come before. Uh, but how about Raj? I just, well, well, before yeah, we, I disagree. Wait, 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 let's, let's, let's see if anyone agrees with me. Cause I know you, I know you disagree, but, but so Raj, do you agree with me or, or do you disagree with me? I mean, I can see how you would feel that way, but I think I was, you know, knowing the show was kind of weird. I, I, I appreciated when they started introducing these different like worlds as dreams. Um, you know, I'm always a sucker for alternate realities and things. And so it kind of fits in with that kind of vein to me. And I actually loved that episode and I loved the, the kind of oddness of it because, you know, it, it, it is kind of, I guess, you know, Fargo is a good comparison, 
but you know it, it's a bit of an action kind of thing told through a completely ridiculous story um and i thought it was completely charming and and funny and interesting and you know i mean just the the ridiculousness of seeing you know him um uh i i just blanked on his name uh, the guy who plays owen with a mullet and yeah. um yeah jonah hill sorry with a mullet and and the lemur a lemur being like you know the big thing that they're trying to get is a lemur that you know belonged to um a, a patient that that you know Annie's character was taken care of and who died and and I I don't know there's something about how quirky it was and and unexpected that made me love it um I mean there there are others that came later that I was less interested in although you know other things come up later as well but I think the this first one I I think was is probably my favorite of all of them Matt what do you think um I was with you at first, Dave. So, like, I was, I really missed the, the sort of 80s retro futurism. But I understand, like, you couldn't have the entire show just take place in that lab, or you could, but it, it was extremely cloistered, and I think more things needed to happen. Um, one of the things about narratives that have dreams, dream sequences, is I often don't like them because the dreams don't usually mean anything. They don't have any consequences. But I think I, I learned to really love these episodes because they do mean things. Like once you realize that the narrative arc is their path towards dealing with their trauma, you realize that these dreams are revealing things about these characters that they did, themselves didn't know. Like, um, for exa example, like Annie is doing this thing that she feels she has to do, save this lemur. But it turns out that that is actually the worst thing she could possibly do because it was like a, an FU from, from the, the lemur owners, uh, you know, to, to her daughter. Um, so, um, you know, and Annie never even considered that. It was always about what she wanted, not what other people wanted. Um, and then like Owen is just extremely passive in this and literally takes the fall for her at the end, which is exactly what his family is asking him to do, take the fall. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, I felt like not all of the dream sequences worked for me. Uh, in particular, I wasn't super in love with the fantasy sequence, uh, sort of the Lord of the Rings analog, even though I did recognize where they, where they shot that. They shot that in, uh, Minnewaska State Park, um, just two hours north of Manhattan. But, um, so like not all the dreams, uh, worked uh narratively for me but i thought like overall i really liked that the show was not afraid to use that to tell a story because at the end of each dream sequence you learn more about the character and about their um defense mechanisms and their trauma and 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 the things that they are unwilling to accept and and so so it, it, you know as i'm watching it i was sort of iffy on it but in retrospect thinking about it now i think i really enjoyed them i mean i don't have a problem in principle with dream sequences i mean i liked some of these i liked the um the seance one i liked the yeah. sort of dr strange love alien one yeah and i liked um i forget but I, I basically liked the ones that maintained for me the sort of a little bit of the creepy science fiction mystery conspiracy kind of vibe, but the more sort of like gangster um, sort of, you know, criminals ones, they, they just didn't seem to fit particularly to me, right? At least I didn't like them as much as the other stuff. Um, but so Chandra, I'll give you a chance now here to, why don't you jump in and, and defend the, uh, the, the, the dream sequences? 
Yeah, I mean, I definitely would echo what like Matt was saying about like I think that you know a dream sequence having consequences is is pretty primary for me in in terms of like thinking if it works or not. I think the thing that's really uh, haunting to me about the lemur episode specifically, though, is so did you guys catch that the reason that she's delivering the lemur, you know, at first, it's like, you know, she's supposed to be a nurse who was taking care of this dying woman who was estranged from her daughter. And uh, the woman says, you know, if you give her this lemur after I die, it will like heal this rift between us. Um, when she ultimately after much violence um, along the way delivers the lemur, it turns out that it's not like an I love you lemur. It's an F you lemur is right. the way that the daughter describes it. And then she, you know, she says, my mother wrote me this letter saying that it's better to have a lemur than to have a human child. You shouldn't have a child. But then she's like jokes on her. I'm already pregnant and I'm going to name the baby Greg F.U. Nan Naslin. Uh, the name of the dying woman was Nan. We find out elsewhere that uh, the truck driver who killed Annie's sister and, you know, caused that, that car crash, he was, you know, falling asleep after several days being on no-dos, um, was Greg Fun Nasland. His middle name was Fun. You know, it, it, and so she says that she's going to name him Greg F U Nan Nasland F U N Nasland. Um, so it's it's supposed to be that she's trying to prevent the conception of the guy who killed her sister in reality. Um, and I think that there's just for me this really creepy turn at that point in the story when she's she's sort of realizing how this connects. Um, she's had this kind of really really chirpy like charming. Like, you know, almost like a character from a sitcom kind of uh, persona throughout the episode. But as this is unfolding in this woman's living room, she actually says in a sort of affectless way, maybe she's right. Maybe you shouldn't have kids. And at that same moment, like a truck driving by the house outside, like uh, makes this incredibly loud sound and startles also Jonah Hill's character, who is reading a book by Greta Mantle Ray, uh, mother of the guy, you know, doing the experiment that has a picture of Olivia, the girl from his blip in it. So to me, the thing that was amazing about that episode was that it pulled off this really Coen Brothers pastiche kind of quality, but that then gets kind of like interrupted and unsettled the way that real dreams do. Like, you know, when you have a dream and then you realize that the person you're talking to in the dream is dead, for example. Um, and there's just this sort of like this sort of dawning realization so, I mean, I felt, I felt like in a way it, you know, it definitely does have consequences and, and, and that aesthetically it kind of like, it, it manages to capture in this nightmarish way, the way that like therapy can feel when you suddenly start listening to yourself and you're disturbed by what you're hearing. So that, that would be my argument for that particular. I, I mean, I liked what the stuff, the creepy stuff you're talking about where you see the connections to the other things, but it just, there wasn't enough there for me personally to justify the however 20 or 30 minutes is what it felt like anyway of like wildlife shootouts with the fur smuggler guys. Uh, yeah. And humor is like so subjective. I mean, I found that episode really, really funny. Like um, all of the stuff about bulletproof furs, like, you know, and uh, Jonah Hill's trying all those fur coats. And as they're leaving, even though he was just doing that as a cover for her sneaking around in the back, he's like, I really liked how I felt in that. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it just it, it made and me the, laugh out loud. The fish and wildlife. Yeah, they have like 
authority-wise, we're pretty much the same thing as the cops, you know? <laughs> I thought that was great. Well, no, and I, I don't disagree that it was funny. I mean, I, I actually was, you know, I, I thought I thought the whole show throughout was pretty funny, but um, a lot of it, I was like, I felt like it was, it was funny, but it needed to, like, for me to be more tied in with the rest of the events in a more sort of narrative drive sort of way. And and that's kind of what I felt was missing through a lot of the show for me. I I, I part I partly agree with you in the in the sense that I, I didn't think it was like there were parts I'm like is this narratively connected to it? I mean we come out of that and we learn a few things, but but at the same time you know I I really appreciate the the writers and directors taking risks like this. I I think that um, you know. You mentioned like the Coen Brothers pastiche. I, I actually think that you know there's a perfect example of a show that's willing to take risks with narrative, and and sometimes it pays off, and sometimes it doesn't. So I, I really appreciated that uh, that aspect of it. And I also will say I'm pretty sure that that takes place on Long Island. And having grown up on Long Island, I would say that they they nailed the Long <laughs> Island accent really really well. Um, so I was just impressed with that that part of it. At yeah. least. Very last thing I'll say about it is like there's a quote later in the show. I think it's when um, Jonah Hill's character is sort of in gangster mode. Like, but uh, there's that line about like, you know, brains are just computers to make our life stories make sense. And I guess I just feel like in those moments where we're really deep in fantasy, but the, the characters, I mean, that's what like the behavioral, behavioral pill is supposed to be about, right? Is, is sort of like, what kind of like patterns does your brain churn through and how do we sort of reroute those patterns? I just, I just thought it was like, you know, interesting to see sort of these same characters working through like a totally different set of like uh, a different set of imagery and circumstances. So, but I can, you know, I can certainly, I can certainly see where you're coming from, Dave. Yeah. Well, let's, let's get Raj back in here. So Raj, what do you make of all this we've been talking about and just sort of overall, like, what do you like or dislike about the show as it develops? Um, I mean, I think, you know, just, just starting off with that episode, you know, I think the, when they, when we find out that they're together in these dreams and they're not supposed to be, um, I, I, again, I found that just to be a, a nice way to follow through it. You know, these two people from two different backgrounds who, who, you know, are somehow kind of thrown together into these, dreams and, and them getting to know one another and them getting to kind of, um, help one another through these different circumstances. Uh, I agree that I think, I mean, I, I thought the episode, the, the first episode was fun. Um, and then at the end it gets creepy, although I probably do need to watch it again because it, it you know, when, when Chandler explained that, I was like, Oh God, it's even better than I remember it being. Um, but I think the, the next one that followed after that with the seance, I thought that was really cool. I, I mean, again, I guess I kind of filtered it through my appreciation of alternate realities. And I know that's not what it was, but in a way, it, it kind of follows that sort of path for me with people going from place to place where everything's different, but there are certain things that carry through. Um, I mean, I love to see um, Sally Field step into it because oh, yeah. I, I, she's amazing. Like, I, I think she's amazing in everything she does, but she was amazing in this and, you know, how she pops up in the dream. And then, you know, we know that she's also Greta Mantle Ray and how that comes out in the background of James um, that we find out. And um, I think I agree that, that, so I, I really like that one. I really like the Dr. Strange lovish kind of one. Um, 
I wasn't too keen on the, the, the fantasy one. I mean, I think there were some funny parts. Um, I, I laughed out loud actually when she said half elf instead of elf and just because I'm a, <laughs> I'm a D and D nerd, but yeah. basically, um, that one didn't, didn't feel, I, I didn't have as strong a, a connection to that storyline. I understood what they were, they were going for, but it didn't work for me as much. Um, and the one where, um, Jonah Hill has the braids also didn't work for me just because to me, I think the least, the, the less interesting story, I mean, it worked out in the end, but I think that the whole thing with his family, the more they got into it, the less I responded to it because I, I pretty much understood what was going on there. Um, and it, he kept coming back to it, which I understand is part of his own psychology, but that wasn't as, um, interesting to me. Although the part with him and the, I, I guess was it Olivia, who's in that dream is the diner waitress. I really liked that. I thought like seeing those moments gave us a glimpse of what it was like for him in the past, in the real world, um, coming out in this dream. But the, the, I mean, I understand that that also was deliberately over the top, kind of violent and gory, but it, it, that shook me out of the, the storyline a bit more than, than, the lemur one did for example um but then the i doctor have a hard time understanding him at that like he, he was kind of mumble speaking in, in those scenes and I, I really had a hard time with his voice did anyone else have that issue yeah actually the second time i watched the show i put on close captions for for a lot of scenes just because i wanted to make sure i didn't miss anything but i i think that it's particularly useful in that part yeah i mean that I have just a, a basic, I mean, I really enjoyed Jonah Hill's performance, which I thought was h- hilarious, but I thought that as a character, um, Owen had sort of a shelf life for how interesting I found him that, um, you know, sort of petered out to around episode six or so, where I, I just felt like all he ever does really in the show is say what in sort of a dazed way. And, um, you know, he never really seems to make any big choices or, you know, he just sort of is a, is a really passive character. And uh, I, I was looking for a little bit more just agency or spark or something out of that character. Something that I was I was taken with um, is, you know, the way that sort of psychological violence in the fantasies becomes physical violence that's either either silly and cartoony or like really gross. And I totally get why that might not work for every viewer but that was something that like i thought was i think there's something really great about being able to literalize the psychological states of your characters so i I felt like it seemed right to me that owen who in real life is so incredibly passive and detached would you know imagine the sort of psychological violence of his family as being this physical violence with these drills that like um i don't know yeah but like it was definitely I was rewatching one of those episodes when I was eating lunch and I actually had to stop (laughs) because it was so disturbing. Yeah, I I really like that part of the show, how they they turn the psychological violence into physical violence in the dreams. Because, like, you know, anyone who's ever suffered through psychological violence, and I think we all have, it it, it hurts physically. It's physical pain in the body. And so I I, I enjoyed that aspect of it because it just, it just, it just, um, it made it, it made it more real. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, oh, so Chandor, did you, uh, cause I agree with, I think it was Matt, I think Matt and Raj that the Lord of the Rings sequence was sort of underwhelming. Did you, do you have a, uh, robust defense of that one? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, 
I probably wasn't as into that as I was the lemur episode, although I still the thing that I think worked for me so well there uh was the relationship between Annie and her sister, um, who's, you know, playing the elf the elf character that she's escorting to the Lake of the Clouds where she'll be healed. I feel like we see in the earlier scene where the sisters in real life are together in the motel, um, or in at least Annie's memory of real life are together in the motel that they're watching a fantasy movie on the TV and Annie thinks that it's stupid and her sister loves it. Um, and so that's the reason that they're in that setting. So I guess to me, I didn't see it so much as a exactly a just a parody or homage to fantasy, but it's sort of about like the way that that genre looks to somebody who isn't herself a lover of it, but kind of has picked up enough, like, by osmosis from somebody else that she cares about. So I, I felt like, you know, those those moments where, for example, her sister is supposed to, or, you know, the, the elf girl that she's escorting to the Lake of the Clouds is supposed to pay her in diamonds, and she says, I'm going to need eight more, and she says, you know, well, that will be extremely painful. I have to urinate them. And then she just goes back, Annie goes back to drinking, like, kind of grossed out. No, um, wait, is that, this just occurred to me, is that a cross with Owen, the urination thing? That's what yeah, I was just oh, thinking, that, too. Yeah. Yeah. It must be. It must be. I didn't even make that connection. But I think that, like, that didn't actually seem to me to be in any way a reference to something from the fantasy genre. It's more like, well, there's a bunch of weird stuff in that genre. Like, I can imagine it being sort of weird and off-putting is, is more like Annie's perspective on it. But I don't know. I, I mean, it's I, not as robust a defense as the lemur episode, but I, I did <laughs> think that it, it worked for me when I was watching it. I mean, the one thing in that that I really liked was the part they, they are supposed to find this burning tree. And I just yeah. visually the burning tree I thought was so striking and then how it sort of pans over and there's the moon in the sky, the invisible moon. And yeah. I just that just visually again, the visual aesthetic of the show is so amazing. And and that just that sequence or that sort of panning shot kind of stuff, uh, yeah. that totally worked for me. I agree. And I was I really I really loved that uh Annie's character, you know, who's half elf has tried to cut off her elf ears, but they're still visible. Um it seemed like there was something about like yeah, that sort of self-abnegating impulse that's in her as a character, you know, getting kind of literalized in a different way in in this fantasy setting. So, yeah, I didn't I didn't necessarily see it as doing something super original with the fantasy genre as much as just kind of like reflecting the character's relationship with her sister and her own attitude. I mean, about the, it. the point you, that hadn't occurred to me that the reason it's sort of a dumb generic fantasy is because she's not a fantasy fan and she doesn't know enough to construct a cool fantasy setting. I mean, that hadn't occurred to me. I don't know if I believe that or not, but that's kind of an interesting take on it. I mean, you can certainly say that that's like a cop out on the part of the writers, but that was that was the reason that I think it worked for me. Yeah, I'd forgotten that they were watching that in the, the motel room. And I think that Definitely makes me appreciate it more now why they chose it. I obviously do need to go back and watch it all. And wasn't it the movie Hawk or something from the 80s and then and then Owen um, transforms into a hawk later? To, to go oh, my God. I bet you're right about that. But I actually I'm not familiar with that movie. So I didn't I didn't make that connection. Is it Lady Hawk? You're thinking is it Lady Hawk or is it is it? Yeah, I, I, I'd have to watch with it Rucker Hauer and. Uh... I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember it at all. What they showed there, so that'd be interesting. I thought the can we? Oh, sorry. I, I thought the movie on the screen was not a real. Mo it was like some elves, sort of generic elves. I, I, it didn't seem to me like it was a real movie. It wasn't Lady Hawk for sure. Okay. Um, but Chandra, go ahead. Oh, I just was going to say, can we talk about Owen as a hawk? Because that was my favorite <laughs> moment of the whole series. Yeah, go ahead. 
I mean, yeah, like I was I was more just interested in other people's feelings about it. I mean, we find out that when he was a kid, he rescued this hawk from uh from Central Park that had a broken wing, nursed it back to health, and then when it ate his brother's gerbil, his brother killed it with a hammer. Yeah. Um so in this sort of like, you know, this moment of uh of ju- justice or self-actualization or something when he goes to save Annie in the fantasy sequence, he t- he turns into a hawk, but I just thought it was absolutely hilarious to hear uh, Jonah Hill's character doing the voiceover as this hawk majestically flies between canyons of like, hey, Annie, it's me. It's Owen as a hawk. It's just so awkward and amazing. (laughs) That's fun. I mean, I, I do think that that sequence, you know, I know, Dave, you were complaining about how Owen is very, you know, he, he doesn't do a lot, but I think to me, the internal journey that he goes on is basically, you know, learning to trust himself to actually do things. And so then he takes the action of actually saving Annie, like he does save her. Um, and then, um, in real life, he hasn't quite had that awakening yet in a way, um, until, well, I don't want to skip to the end, but, uh, you know, obviously I think she helps him to have that moment. He helps her and then it kind of feeds back to, to one another but i i did think that that was a really cool moment and you know again it it, the the weirder the show was the more i appreciated it and so that was awesome like when he also when he falls out of or he jumps out of the apartment and he's in kind of miniature scale city and 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 i just going from that to the hawk all worked really well for me which was a minute which was a miniature scale city of his um real apartment right right but yeah did anyone do do you guys remember um, in the 80s, there was that HBO sequence before a movie where they went through a model. Sure. And doesn't that, didn't it look just like that, or is it just... I mean, I uh, think there's similarities, definitely. Yeah, I wonder if they were tra- riffing on that. But yeah, but yeah it, we, even, it even had, like, the advertisements. Didn't we kind of... I, I mean, so my, my take on that place, if, if it's okay to talk about, is that it was kind of like the space between the different, like dreams that people were having and so he jumped out of his he he ends up in hers later on um and he ends up in the same place when she has well, her i think resolution. that's where he he recognizes that he's in a model quote unquote like he's in a you know fictitious reality right all right so i, I think we maybe should actually skip to the end because we're running kind of short on time and maybe we can circle back and fill in stuff depending on how much time we have but um so so they undergo this whole process uh it all goes horribly wrong um i guess we we should maybe quickly just talk about um the uh, dr mantle ray and his co-worker azumi and dr mantle ray's mother who we said to sally field is a uh sort of um celebrity psychologist who has books and a tv show and stuff and or maybe it was a radio show um and and is the author of such books as i'm okay you're a bitch um and, 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 and seems just like an incredibly toxic person and has an incredibly toxic, uh, relationship with her son. Um, and so we, we find out that the computer, they sort of like scan, scanned her brain, uh, to create this AI system. And, and maybe that's part of the reason why it's so, uh, sort of dysfunctional. Um, but so anyway, the, the whole project completely crashes and burns. And, but somehow, um, Owen and Annie emerge from this, uh, sort of having, uh, sort of overcome a lot of their, um, you know, like inner conflicts that they needed to resolve. And I think Chandor, did you say on, on social media that you found the ending was a little weak? 
Um, it, yeah, for ahead. me, it was really the last episode. Not that I actually feel like the structural end of the story is the, certainly that like the climax of the story is in episode nine, and then uh, episode ten is all denouement. And I actually really felt like episode ten got it explained things that had already that didn't need to be explained that like had already been you know kind of ground that had been covered symbolically already. And it also seemed like it maybe made things a little bit too easy for uh, the two main characters. But I'm curious to hear others' takes on it. I agree with that completely. Um, and that was my my biggest issue with that whole ending. Um, and I actually wondered if, you know, Netflix had said, look, we need a little bit more for people who aren't going to get what exactly happened or, or whatever, or we need more. Um, because I, I felt like it was a little superfluous um, after what we had seen before. And it, it wrapped things up very too, too neatly for my taste, especially after what had come before. So I disagree yeah, one, with that completely, but go ahead, Shanna. Oh, I, yeah, just, well, like, one, one thing specifically, and then you can speak to this, Matt, like, uh, that I found frustrating in the very last episode is that, you know, Annie goes through this whole process with this drug, and she, um, you know, has sort of figured things out, and even though she's still struggling emotionally, she's she's ready to start moving on, and she goes to see her dad, and she's making this emotional speech to the a void in the backyard, and it turns out that he's already come out of it. Um, you know that he's he's inside the house, that he's you know found that she stole his money, and he sort of was like, you know, I guess we're supposed to think that that he thought that she was gone forever, and that in some way that galvanized him. But I had such a problem with that because the thing is that like when you make a leap forward in your own psychology and your own your own mental health, one of the things that makes life continue to be difficult is that the people around you aren't necessarily at that same point in their journey. And it can be really hard to be like, okay, I'm in this new healthier pattern now and this other person is still right. for their own reasons dragging their feet. So I felt like that just seemed to me too easy. I, I wanted him to be in the a void and I wanted either for him not to come out even when she asks him to and she has to deal with that. And that's the first sort of challenge that she faces in this new state of mental stability. Or maybe she convinces him, but then it's going to be kind of a long road for him. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I will say that um, Annie's relationship with her father, like I thought that was too too happy of an ending, that particular part of it. I agree that, um, you know, having her continue on her journey alone would have been truer to the story that they were telling without this sort of happy, sweet ending. But, you know, you know, and I mentioned this earlier, like my problem with the this other film, The Silver Linings Playbook, was that, you know, it made it seem like once you have a friend, once you have someone who loves you, you love back, that mental illness is suddenly like, cured or, or, you know, now everything is, is going to be, you know, easy from now on or something. And, and having had people in my life who, who have suffered through this, uh, through mental illness, I know that's not the case. You could love someone to death and, you know, they just have bad brain, brain chemistry. And, and so like, I love the fact that she decides that Annie decides, you know, Owen's fucked up. Owen's in this horrible situation, but he's, but he's got no one. His family abandoned him and I'm not going to, and I'm going to get him out of there. And so, you know, when they're driving away, I don't see that as a happy ending. I just see that as a transition, which I think is different. And then the, the other thing too, I will just say is like when they're coming out of the, uh, pharmaceutical trial and they're all getting their checks and everything, if you look at their faces, not just Annie and Owen, but everyone, 
they don't look happy. They don't look like, like they, they reach this, this nirvana or, or they reach peace. They look devastated. They look like totally wrecked. Why? Because they, you know, they, they went through their trauma, but they come out the other side, but they're, you know, they've reached a, an awareness. But, but, you know, healing is something that's like a lifelong process and may, you may never heal from it, especially mental illness. So like, I, I, well, I just, okay, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Well, Dave, I, had... I mean, the way I read it was that the other, obviously the other people in the trial were not going to really come out of this experience with anything because the whole process was sort of dysfunctional and, and ineffectual. Okay. Okay. That's and, fair. That's and yeah, only, I agree. only um, Annie and Owen came out of it with something because due to a fluke, they had made this connection with each other. That was okay, independent fair, of yeah. the the sort of therapeutic value of the procedure. Yeah, but I mean, in in terms of like this, the you know, the this ending being sort of like everything is resolved and easy and happy. I didn't I didn't read it that way. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I think it was resolved for the characters, but I think it was almost like spoon fed to the audience more than anything. Um, but I mean, I I, I didn't hate it. You know, like I, I felt like it was fine, and and it it fit in with the, I mean, what you were saying, Dave, is exactly how I took it, that, that because the Owen and Annie were together, that they had a different result than everyone else. And I think that the, the message or whatever, the theme that comes out of this story is, is one about human connection. Like even with, you know, we, we have James who created a computer based on his mother because he didn't have an actual connection with his mother. And then, you know, it comes to some kind of resolution with that, you know, not that it's fixed. They don't, you know, they don't become a, a great mother and son couple. You know, they, they, he mentions lunch and then she's like, I'm never going to have lunch with you. And he's like, okay, fine. Never see you again. So it doesn't resolve nicely, but they have a moment of connection, which actually addresses a serious problem that's going on. And the, you know, later on with, with Asumi, he, he has an actual real connection, which, you know, to me at least, gave him a more hopeful outcome than the one that he had been in before. Um, even though he still wants to go to Atlantis with her. But, um, you know, I, I think to me, the, the whole thing, the whole, again, message of the show, not that it was giving a message, but what comes out of it is that in this world where, you know, people are paying ad buddies and, and proxy friends and things like that, that it's human connection that, that can at least, not heal us necessary, but lift us out of the dark places so that we can find a better path. Yeah, but I think like there's also this weird tragedy at the end of the show in, I mean, episode nine, which I found really, really disturbing, especially on a second viewing, you know, so they've, they've, tr they've created this GRTA that's based on the psychology of Mantle Ray's mother, as, as you're saying, Sally Field's character, um, Greta. But then when, that becomes, you know, aberrant when she she falls in love with uh with Robert, the doctor who dies at the beginning of the series and is then, you know, sort of deranged with grief for him. Um, ultimately, what they do is disconnect her that like, you know, even though it seems like maybe she herself, the the computer is kind of on a path to healing. They're not patient enough to like wait around for that. And I think that there's something about that that's like this really like that's really haunting. Like, you know, that's th that, that computer has been orchestrating all of the healing that we see with Annie and Owen. And even though it's been, you know, having its, its own ups and downs, um, it's, it seems like at the end, like capable of maybe change. And then it's just like, 
they unplug it. But yeah, I found has, that really affecting, actually. Yeah. But ha- yeah. has the computer not been, maybe I misunderstood this, has the computer not been basically lobotomizing people so that their minds will be trapped inside it forever so that it will have company? Yeah, but I mean, like, it does that because it's lonely. I mean, you know, it's not it's not an inhuman um, motivation for it to have, and yet it's... And at the, one of the very last things the computer says before they unplug it is, don't punish me for being sad, James. And then he unplugs it. Yeah. Um, and so there's something about that that I just felt like it kind of got lost in all of the positive developments for the human characters. And I kind of wish that the show had maybe lingered on that like a little bit more. I agree. I think that that darkness is integral to what the show is about. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I, to me, actually, and I don't know if any other people thought about this, but when he kills, essentially, the, the AI that's based on his mother, he goes through a kind of psychological catharsis in the sense that he's, you know, sort of killing his mother in a weird way, the, this construct of his mother that he created, which I think, to me, and maybe this is just some weird, thing that I came up with, but to me, you know, leads him to a better place at the end because he's been able to, you know, like, I think they're all going through the same experiment, but just in different ways, like even the AI is. Um, but also, I just want to say, um, before we run out of time, that that one of my favorite moments was when, you know, Annie's talking to, they call her Gertie, right, in, in the, in yeah, the show. Yeah, right. So yeah. she's talking to Gertie in the simulation. And she, you know, she says something like, when is it going to stop hurting? And, and a lot of TV shows and movies and things will say it'll get better with time. And she says it, it never goes away. It like you just learn to shape your life around it. And, you know, I, I, it was recently the anniversary of my mother's death. And I don't bring that up for any reason other than to say it, it, you know, it was nine years ago. And I still realize that like that thing about time making things less doesn't actually work. You know, there, there are things that don't actually get better. And so sometimes you just have to learn how to roll with it from time to time. And so like that kind of honest response was something I haven't seen in, in fiction for a while. Yeah. Well, let me just mention, so I listened to an interview with um, the screenwriter um, and he said that, you know, they had, I think it was like eight weeks or something to write the, write these scripts. And so he showed up for the first couple of days and then his dad died. And so then he had to like go home for a couple of days and deal with that and then come back and finish writing this show. So, you know, obviously that play, you know, uh, influenced the way that the story developed. Yeah. Wow. Powerfully. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. Uh, I just want to say uh, in terms of like my, my big suggestion for the end of this is that I felt like, yeah, I, I agree with what Chandler was saying that a lot of the resolution is too, too easy or quick or something. But I particularly felt that with, I mean, cause, cause Owen's big character arc, I think is supposed to be that he doesn't have the courage to stand up to his family and do what's right at the beginning. And then at the end, he does. But that seems to be totally undercut by the way that it played out, where it turns out that they have video of his brother, um, you know, doing the sexual misconduct. So his testimony is kind of, you know, rendered moot. Um, and then he, you know, he, he says what he says the right thing, you know, after that, uh, which I thought undercut it a lot, but then also he's testifying against his brother who's just this total dick. Who's just been a dick to him his whole life. And I thought it would have been a lot more interesting if it was, um, Adelaide who was the one who had done something, you know, bad. And then Owen is in the position of having to testify against the only person in his family who's ever been nice to him at all. And, and then there's that on, and that, and that he, you know, kind of has feelings for, and then there's that, then that that to me, and then if he goes ahead and and does what's right and testifies against her, that would be 
so much more to me, so much more wrenching and just emotionally, you know, difficult than to tell the truth about his dickhead brother who seems to have no redeeming qualities whatsoever and who he's not that attached to anyway. I totally agree with that. I actually, I had a similar thought, which was, um, I didn't think of having it be that it could be a different person that he was testifying against, but I was thinking he and his brother are both the products of this family that's, you know, really emotionally abusive. What if in some way he really identifies with his brother or he sees, he sees something in his brother that is worth redeeming? Um, but then he's kind of placed in this impossible situation because, there's a scene right before he testifies where his brother is, uh, you know, starts crying. And then he's like, look, these are real tears. Like, you know, I'm really like, I'm really upset. But it's like, it's almost like by announcing that it sort of tells us to distrust this, like it tells us to think this is a performance. And he also throws his mug against the wall. So he comes across really aggressive. I was like, what if the two of them really had a moment of connection? And then he has to sever that connection to do the right thing. Yeah, that, that would be would, heartbreaking. That would be. Yeah, you should you should email the the writers for the you know maniac series two right? season two, <laughs> season two the revision right. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, I want to I had some listener comments. So I want to maybe like just throw some of these out here uh, at the end. So let's see. Uh, Nicholas Mallow says the most boring shit ever. Uh, Eden Rabach says, uh, severely disappointed. This isn't bad, but everyone involved has gone for a manic energy. And if that doesn't click, then it is almost unwatchable. And I love all the creatives involved. Josh McIntyre says, I dug it. Certainly not for everyone, but damn, some of those performances were great. The two leads were exceptional, but I have to say Justin Theroux deserves a shout out as well. And Gary Flood says, my kid will be very disappointed if you don't cite the vaporware design elements in Maniac, which she spotted in minutes. Uh, I think that means the sort of retrofuturism kind of stuff we were talking about. I think maybe like, is Betamax technology sort of the standard in this world? I, I forget it. Maybe I'm imagining that, but. Well, they uh, had floppy disks and they, they, you know, they had monochrome screens. I mean, they had all sorts of, you know, technology that's obsolete. Yeah. So any, uh, any, uh, any other responses to that or any other final, uh. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would definitely say that the show is, is not for everyone. I, I think that it's a particular, uh, type of taste that it would appeal to. Um, you know, some of the friends I showed it to weren't that, that hooked by it. But I, you know, for me, what stuck with me was, uh, it ultimately had a heart, like a really big heart, which, which I, uh, like I said, I was skeptical in the first episode. I thought it, it was not going to be, uh, be that. And I found out that it, it did. That was really great. And I just, I just love, uh, the fact that they were, they were willing to, um, experiment with all these different narrative ways of, of, of telling a story. And, and that for me really worked. And, and so like, like coming out of it, I, I, I feel like, you know, I definitely would, would recommend that if people are curious about the show to, to check it out. Cause I, I haven't really seen anything like this on TV in a long time. See, Chanter, on my Facebook page, you said that this was one of your favorite shows ever. Although I think that was before you had seen the whole thing. Do you stand by that? No, that's. Yeah, I mean, the first uh, the first nine episodes are my favorite TV drama of all time. And I would say that, like, even including episode 10, it's, like, definitely in my top five. I mean, I I, I felt incredibly moved by it. Um, I thought it was incredibly playful and surprising. Um, 
I liked that it, you know, it rewards multiple watches and then close attention. You know, I mean, I thought the performances were all really good. And I actually didn't see them as all going for manic energy all the time. I thought it was great the way that, like, you know, Justin Thoreau brought a lot of nuance to that character that is at moments so hilariously cartoony, but at other times does seem kind of genuinely vulnerable. Like, I think that that just, yeah, really, really worked for me. So, yeah, I would I would definitely say it's one of my favorites of all time. I mean, Matt, you said on Facebook, um, at times it's a little too metaphorical. Uh, what did you mean by that? Well, I was trying not to uh, be spoilery because we were on Facebook and people hadn't seen it. So um, I was basically talking about the idea that, um, you know, like what I was saying before with, with dreams that, you know, sometimes when you're, uh, you know, in, in certain narratives, when you have a dream sequence and it doesn't relate at all to the plot when there's there's no consequences. But I, I felt like this show, the, the dreams were revealing uh, elements of the, uh, the narrative of the characters. In other words, the dreams did have meaning and, and did have consequences uh, to the overall story. So, so, you know, there were times, I think, where some of the dream uh, sequences didn't quite work, like we spoke about, like the, the Lord of the Ring analog one. But overall, you know, I, I, uh, you know, I, I found it really inventive. Fun. I mean, really, I just had fun watching. Um, Raj, any other thoughts you want to throw in here at the end? Uh, I mean, I agree with Matt that that it's not for everyone. Although I, I really, I mean, I just can't understand how that one guy found it boring, um, especially with that first episode. I think you know, just some of the ideas, I would never find any of those boring. But you know, people are different, so that's fine. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it, and actually, after talking about it here. I think I enjoy it more. I think the, the, the things that I appreciate the most are often the things that stay with me after I, I, I watch them and the things that, um, produce additional thoughts and resonance after I've, I've completed them. And this is definitely one of those, um, series. And, and, you know, again, Chandler, thank you so much because there's layers to things that I didn't connect and now I can go back and, you know, and enjoy it again. So, so yeah, I definitely, I, I don't know that I would say one of my favorite ever because I, I'm really bad at, at ranking things, but, um, I'm impressed. Let me say, I'm impressed by pretty much everyone involved in this. Um, and so I, I, and I really enjoyed, um, uh, True Detective season one. So I guess I'll have to check out, um, Corey's next, is it Corey or Carrie? Carrie? Carrie's next thing, which apparently is an adaptation of the eighties, uh, movie Explorers, which, um, oh my about God, kids. I just saw that. That sounds so amazing. Kids building a spaceship and, and going out into space. So. What? That sounds great. Yeah. I think he's also doing the next James Bond movie. He is, which I, I am super, super excited about. So. Um, also my, my girlfriend has a huge crush on him. Um, <laughs> I guess I'll just say sort of just on a more sort of abstract level. I think one of the difficulties I had with the show is that in the first episode, it's, it's set up that it seems to be a show where you're not sure what's going to be real and what's not. And there seems to be this big cosmic conspiracy and a lot of paranoia. And then by the end, it turns out all that stuff was just kind of in his head. And he, it's all, it's sort of about making connections and, and finding a friend and I just feel like I was always kind of more interested in the conspiracy, paranoia, cosmic mission, not knowing what's real kind of stuff. And I feel like any kind of story where you introduce the possibility that there's some big conspiracy, if it turns out like, oh, no, actually there wasn't, I, I feel like it's always going to be a letdown at some level. It's Chekhov's conspiracy. If you have <laughs> yeah, a conspiracy yeah, yeah. on the mantle. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I didn't mind that so much. I, I think it was just kind of a red herring. Like, like I said at the beginning, I thought that's what it was going to be about. Sort of, um, like dark city matrix type thing where there's like a, a, a reality underneath the reality. Um, and, and I was like, Oh, okay. You know, I, I, I've seen this before. It's, you know, is it going to go like this black mirror way and just be very dark and depressing? And I'm not sure if, if I'm ready to watch that, but I, I felt that it took a different turn. Um, yeah, I, I did, that didn't bother me as much. Yeah, I kind of think at the beginning of the show, you know, the the lies or fantasies that the characters are living in are the same way that we first encounter them. So, like, you know, we think that Annie's sister is alive and we think that maybe Owen is the subject of some kind of conspiracy. I feel like that's kind of like a way of getting to know them on, you know, where they're at at that point in the story. Yeah. But I can see how it would be frustrating if you have to sort of switch your expectations. It was also like a really good way, I thought, to just get you into his world, to get you into his head and say, this is how he experiences the world. Um, and then so when you switch out of that, you're like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, I was completely disorienting. And I thought that was effective. I still just want to know what the Statue of Extra Liberty is holding. I watched all <laughs> 10 episodes and there was never, they never told me. It's a beer. It's a beer. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's a brain and a scalpel. Yeah. That makes more sense. <laughs> There's probably a Reddit thread somewhere where you you can like dive deep into people's theories about wh what it's about and what it's holding and things like that. There's also an amazing um, like cosplay thread on Reddit of all the people uh, dressed up as the as uh, as Doctor Mantle Ray and and uh, Doctor Azumi. It's pretty great. If, if those are Reddit. those are great Halloween costume ideas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to go right now and look up some, some fan theories about what the uh, Statue of Extra Liberty is. Uh, because we're all out of time, so we've got to wrap this up anyway. And so we've been speaking with Rajan Khanna, Chandra Klang-Smith, and Matthew Kressel. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Rajan Khanna, Chandra Klang-Smith, and Matthew Kressel for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Jan, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit GeeksGuideShow.com. To learn more about your host, visit DavidBarrKirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.